Have you ever been really, really hungry? You're listening to Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast. I'm Alex. I'm Carmela. And now let's tuck in to the gruesome history of this ultimate taboo. Welcome to episode 9, The Bowling Isle 52. to joke here at Casting Lots that Alex does all of the serious episodes and I do all the silly ones. So I'm afraid that we're breaking with tradition today. This one's quite depressing guys, buckle up. It's the rigor mortis smile on your face as you say it. Ooh, yeah, this is going to be a fun one. With that said, Alex, would you like to hear about the Berliner 52? I'm not sure that I do, but let's go ahead anyway. For some background, we're in Vietnam. It's the end of the Vietnam War. 1975, US troops have lost Saigon to the North Vietnamese Army and are now withdrawing. This feels very topical, considering that the same thing happened in Afghanistan. Yeah, I was thinking that when I was researching this episode. Following the withdrawal, the Vietnamese allies remaining in the south are now suddenly exposed to the danger of political persecution under the new regime for their allegiance with the US. And what follows is the largest mass departure of asylum seekers by sea in modern history, a migration which causes a humanitarian crisis. The boat people. That's the one. So between 1957 and 1992, Somewhere around a million Vietnamese people are estimated to have fled the country in small boats. These refugees, for the most part, head to Hong Kong, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore and Thailand as a first step in their journey and then go off around the globe, all over, basically. The boats were often manned by unscrupulous traffickers and were unsuited to a sea passage. Passengers had to contend with storms, diseases, starvation, dehydration and lots of piracy, depressingly. Everything that you'd expect from a tragic sea journey. Add on to that fleeing from a war, add on to that people taking advantage of their situation. Oh yeah. It's estimated that around 800,000 people in total made it safely to new locations by boat, whereas somewhere around 200 to 400,000 perished at sea, according to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Ooh which are horrific odds. So, uh, yeah, enjoy this episode. <laughs> you can tell this episode is serious because I am not making any references to Miss Saigon. I was wondering when you were going to make that reference. I think good to get out of your system now. There we go. <laughs> the reference is not making a reference. Cool. One of the most well-known groups of boat people with our Bellanel 52 whose ordeal was picked up by the international press as something of a horror story, for reasons that you can probably guess, given the name of this podcast. We all know what's coming. You know what's coming when it's an episode of Casting Lots. It doesn't make it any easier. 110 refugees set out 
on the 22nd of May 1988 from the port of Bon Che in southern Vietnam aboard a wooden junk which is 45 feet long and already leaking. Oh, fabulous. Sorry, how many? 100? 110. 110. Ish. It's crowded. Yeah. Apparently, according to one of the survivors, they've been told that there would be only 60 people aboard and instead is 110 men, women and children just crammed in. So pretty much double what they were told. They are headed for Malaysia, where a refugee camp promises the hope of moving on to the US and being rehomed there. And the journey is expected to take six days. Cost of passage? One ounce of gold per person. They made me start doing the how many eggs is an ounce thing. <laughs> an ounce of gold's a lot, I think. Gold's heavy. Is it? Gold's not heavy. I thought gold was quite light. Gold's light. But if you're fleeing a war... Yeah, where are you getting your gold from? Yeah. After three days at sea, a storm hits. The junk's engine breaks down and the existing leak becomes way worse. They are now stuck drifting in the South China Sea. There is no mechanic on board who knows how to fix the engine. And they are sort of in two minds about what to do next. Some of them want to turn back. Others want to continue on. It all seems a bit academic because they don't have any propulsional steering. So whichever way they decide, they can't really do anything about it. Are there the people smugglers on board or is it just the refugees? At the moment, they do have a captain on board. Let's see what happens to him later. They don't currently have a sail, but they managed to rig a makeshift one, and the agreement is made to continue on. But as I said, that doesn't really mean much when you can't choose which direction you're headed. To attempt to journey on with a makeshift sail on a junk that's meant to have an engine. Yeah, exactly. After the fifth day, their fresh food and water runs out. Like I said, it's a six-day voyage. They were maybe a bit under-provisioned, considering they were expecting fewer passengers. Wouldn't have been an issue if they hadn't got stuck. Or if there had, in fact, been 60 passengers. Very true. After about a week, one of their number, a man named Feng Kuang Ming, takes charge of the vessel. Ming's a 32-year-old former Air Force officer. Some reports say that he was a paratrooper in a South Vietnamese infantry unit known as the Red Berets, but Ming later says that he'd never actually been in combat and was a student at a school for officers at the end of the war. So, either or, military-ish or adjacent is his background. This is his tenth attempt to escape Vietnam. Ooh. He's already spent four years in prison for two of those escape attempts. And aboard the boat, he takes charge. He makes himself responsible for rationing out the rainwater, for organising crews to bail out the bilge. And everyone welcomes that leadership initially, because it seems like the captain's doing nothing, and it's useful to have some kind of organisation, right? It's useful to have someone taking charge and making decisions. Yeah. The boat's original captain leaves Ming fully in charge when he, to quote, went insane and left aboard a plywood raft with some of his relatives. I couldn't find a record of what happened to them, but I think we can guess. I can make quite an educated guess as to what happens. We know how rafts go down in Casting Lots history. I wish you hadn't phrased it like that, because I just want to make a comment about rafts going oh. down at sea. Yeah, literally. Ugh. No pun intended. According to the survivors, they often see ships passing by, apparently up to around 100, but none of them stop to help. 
Whenever they see a ship, they write an SOS with toothpaste on a piece of wood and hold it up to signal them down. And at night, they set their clothes alight to keep a signal fire going. Ooh. Chung Ching, one of the survivors and the subject of a 2007 documentary film, Berlin Hour 52, describes how, Day by day on the boat, I always thought, I will never die like this. Every day I think, I will survive. Sometimes, as we've covered, you really do just need that determination to survive, that idea that you will make it through. Otherwise, you're just going to lose all hope, really. Exactly. Um, Not to predict the ending, but considering she's in the documentary, I'm going to assume that that does pay off for her. Exactly. On day 10, the refugees spot a Japanese freighter. It comes within 100 yards, but doesn't stop when they try to hail it. Around 12 people jump overboard in an attempt to swim out to it, but it leaves them behind to drown. That... Wow. You think that's bad, Alex? Wait to hear about the next people who stop to help them. Is there confirmation that that freighter did see them? I don't believe so, but 100 yards, it's kind of hard to believe that no one would notice, but maybe. I don't know what time of day it was. I guess it could have been at night. It's almost trying to give the benefit of the doubt, but we have seen people just nope out of helping but I'm really not looking forward to what comes next On the 14th day a 22 year old man dies of thirst making the first person to die of non-drowning reasons aboard The following day a total of 7 children die One of those was the 4 year old daughter of Vorti Bakian In a later interview Ian describes how she did not say anything she just stopped breathing the next day I asked two passengers in the boat to help me to put her little body into the sea. And after that, I sat there without emotion and left everything to fate. Yan also alleged that Ming beat her about the head to prevent her from giving drinking water to the dying children. Ming denies that, but clearly conditions aboard... Are oh, tense? Wanna... Tense, that's the word I'm looking for. Over the following days, people drink urine and seawater out of thirst. Some go overboard and swim away, mistakenly believing that land's within reach. Standard. Yeah. Unfortunately. On the 9th of June, however, so this is day 19. Oh gosh, that's both longer and shorter than I thought it would have been. Another ship is spotted. Is this salvation at last? I'm going to assume not. They hope it will be, of course. It's the USS Dubuque, under the command of Captain Alexander Balian. Ting Tang Xuan, a former lieutenant colonel in the South Vietnamese Army Rangers, is not deterred by what happened to the people who swam out of the Japanese ship and goes overboard to swim out to it with two other men. He recalls, When the US ship was about 200 yards away, I jumped in and swam for it, but when we reached the ship, an American sailor waved us away and motioned for us to return to our boat. The Americans threw down three life jackets to help them get back. However, Tung Ching's brother drowned, trying to get back aboard. She remembers, My brother climbed on the thing on the ship and they shake him. He dropped down, so they said come back, but my brother was too weak. Also speaking in the Bolinao 52 documentary, one of the sailors aboard, Bill Cleanan, said, I saw one Vietnamese drown. He was trying to hold on to a line coming off the ship. 
Somebody was told on the ship to shake the line and not let that guy get aboard. I was quite distressed about it. It was not the right thing to do. It was terrible. Yeah, it was not the right thing to do. Jesus. Yeah, insightful, Cleanan. The Dubuque sent out two rubber launches carrying food and water to help the boat. According to the survivors, this was about six cases of canned meat and two plastic bags, each containing about six gallons of water. They're also given a map with directions to the Philippines, although no other navigational equipment. And no way of getting there. Exactly. The Dubuque men do not offer to help repair the engine or go aboard to assess the state of the ship. Although the survivors say that the US men were made very aware that the engine was broken. Considering that the British government is currently sort of picking an argument with the RLNI about whether or not you rescue people at sea, the idea is that is the most basic thing you can do, which is to offer help and not leave people to die. Not actually offering succinct help and just being like, oh, here, have this, you're on your own, doesn't really seem to fit the spirit of it. Well, the Americans do have a really good reason, though, Alex. Sure. One of the Americans who can speak a bit of Vietnamese tells the refugees that the Dubuque cannot help them because it's on a secret mission in dangerous waters. The details of this, which they didn't reveal at the time, obviously they were secret, were that they were heading from Sasebo in Japan to the Persian Gulf to escort the Vincennes, an American warship which would, a few weeks later, mistakenly shoot down an Iranian civilian airliner, killing all 290 people aboard. Just as a fun extra bit of history and context around this case. Nice one, US military. The American sailor apparently promised that another ship would arrive in two days. Now it's unclear whether that's a definite promise or an estimate or a lie. The survivors on the boat take it as a promise. They understand that the Dubuque men have radioed for help and a boat will be arriving in two days. Whereas US officials claim that they never made that promise. With the benefit of doubt, it could have been something that was lost in translation. Perhaps he didn't speak Vietnamese particularly well and had been misunderstood. But either way, the people on the boat believe that in two days, another ship sent by the US is going to come and save them. Maybe he was assuming that this is a route in which, in at least two days, there will be another passing ship. Whether or not they're willing to help you is an entirely different matter. Yeah. But that's not what the survivors hear. Exactly. The encounter with the Dubuque lasts two hours in total, and then the Americans move on on their secret mission. You'd think they'd at least take some of the children. While they're going into dangerous waters, I guess I can understand their thinking of if we get bombed, those children will die. But equally, if we leave the children on the boat, they'll die. So yeah, no, you're right. It is fair to say that everyone in this situation is already in dangerous waters. Very true. Cloonan told the documentary team, I felt very badly about what we had just done. We did not save them. We left people to their own devices, and as we found out later, those devices were not good. No shit, Sherlock. The survivors later claimed that one of their number died of hunger during the encounter with the Dubuque, a 22-year-old man travelling with his wife and two children. His body was thrown overboard, and the American sailors not only saw it, but photographed the body in the water to prove it had happened, meaning that they definitely knew that the people on the boat were starving to death. 
They knew we were all dying, but they just turned and sailed away, said one of the survivors in an anonymous interview. Once they are abandoned, again, Ming again takes charge to put an end to any fighting over the provisions, and the boat people ration out the food and water given to them by the Dubuque. However, remember, they've been promised help in two days. So they don't need to ration too heavily, especially considering they're starving, because someone will be there in 48 hours. Exactly. After a week, the provisions run out, and there's still no sign of this rescue ship. According to some accounts, Ming's leadership style was very harsh. You've heard already the claims that he beat people to prevent them from giving water to dying children. He and his posse which reportedly included several officers of the former South Vietnamese army, forced weak and starving people to bail water, threatening them with knives and sticks if they didn't work. People continued to die of starvation and dehydration at the rate of two a day. On the 18th of June, according to Ming in a later interview, the refugees decided to use the dying to help the living. The people in the boat came to me. All of the people in the boat agreed with this idea. It was June 18th and we decided to use this date to remember the dying in the boat. I did not want to do the wrong thing. There were so many people. All of these people believed in me and asked me to keep discipline in the boat. And when they decided to use the dying, they asked me to do it. So Ming's later account, it's clear that it's a unanimous decision and he's been elected as the person to do the dirty work, basically. It does take the responsibility away from him. He has given it to the people. Whether or not I believe that, I don't necessarily know. But we definitely have covered in multiple accounts that people do come to this decision rationally. So I don't think there's anything nefarious going on. Yeah. Logically... But unfortunately for the people on the boat, all of the bodies so far have been cast overboard. So there aren't any corpses around currently to eat now that they've made this decision. We've also encountered with rafts and ships before that bodies make really good fishing baits. Yeah. It is stormy weather, which makes it harder to fish, so could be that. I don't think it's been considered. Which is fair. Most people are not us. And your immediate thought is, and how can I utilise this body to get more food? Dao Kuang, aged 30, was already dying of starvation and dehydration. Ming, or the entire group, depending on who you believe, reached a decision that Kuang should be killed to feed the others. Some sources even say that this was based on a lottery, so casting lots. Hey. That's a really unenthusiastic name drop because <laughs> how depressing the situation is. If that was via casting lots, that was a rigged lottery. Yeah. Granted, everyone on this junk is starving to death, but the this man just happens to be starving to death and is near death anyway. Oops, he's lost the lottery. I'm not sure I believe it. I think more likely that he was intentionally selected, whether by Ming or by multiple people. Notably, it doesn't appear that he offered up himself. No, in fact, sorry, Kuang's friend and travelling companion, Ding Tuang Hai, tried to defend him from Ming's group. I said, no, Kuang is still alive. I cannot let you kill and eat him. You can use him if he dies. And Kuang allegedly overhears and says that he doesn't want to die. 
he asks, why not wait until I starve to death? But they don't wait. Ah. In Hai's account, when I saw the two men grab Kwong by the feet and realised they were about to kill him, I asked them to allow us a few minutes in private. Kwong had told me before we had left Vietnam he wanted to be a Catholic. I scooped up some seawater, poured it over his head and read the Bible. Which is an interesting callback to a lot of other examples of these kind of stories that we've had in the past. It seems that people report that they've turned to religion in the last minutes before the casting lot ceremony is complete, right? And it's always hard to tell whether that's a very sort of human desperation or whether it's the survivors trying to remember the deceased as having salvation in an afterlife. I don't know. The idea that despite the horrific end that they did have that moment of peace following. Yeah. And as we have covered in various other episodes of all of the Christian sects, the Catholics are quite down with cannibalism. Although that said, there's something about someone having their baptism and last rites with bailed seawater that sort of gets to me. You had to make use of what you have. It's very human. Oh, here we go. Alex is off about how survival cannibalism makes people human again. No, I do think that this is one of those episodes that brings that out. Certainly watching the interviews from Berlin R52 with the survivors, I really felt that myself. You had your alive moment. I did, I did. The beautiful horror of survival cannibalism and how it reveals. I'm here all week. Tung Ching in particular, her interviews are really heart-wrenching and so human and evocative. I will link the ones that are available on YouTube in the show notes bibliography. Because I know we do a lot of these stories. If you hadn't got it by now, it's sort of the gist of the whole podcast thing. Yeah, yeah, it's our thing. But there is something about how brutal, but also how almost unbelievable survival cannibalism situations are that really throw into sharp relief the fact that all of these people, whether this is a story that happened in, you know, 1650 or the 1980s, when exactly is this story taking place again? This is May 1988. 1988. It really throws into sharp relief that all of the players are people who have full lives and... I know this is certainly something that I found with doing Flight 571, but when you have interviews, it really does help to remind you that this is a real situation that, what is it, but for the grace of God go I? Following this moment to read the Bible, Ming's men allegedly held Kwong by the feet and submerged his head under the water until he drowned. Oh. He was then cut up, boiled and fed to the other passengers. All of the survivors consumed Kwong's flesh. Hai says, We were told we had to eat to stay strong, and if we didn't, we would be next. Can't tell whether that's a threat or an attempt to be reassuring of you have to eat to survive or this will be... It could be either, but considering a man who didn't want to die was murdered, there is a definite aura of threat. Yeah. According to most accounts, two more passengers were also killed for food, and three passengers died of starvation and were also eaten. 
the numbers vary a little bit between who's telling the story. It's roughly in that region. Tung Ching said, We had one before he died. He said, just take him like food. He told us, just take me. So beginning from that day, from that moment, and after that, we have some from the dead people. That still makes me very, very sad. It sounds like from her version of events, the first person to die gave his permission to be eaten. So again, we've got some fuddling of exactly what went down and how. Considering how traumatising I'm going to make an educated guess that it was, I'm going to say a bit of variation in narrative and chronology is to be expected. Exactly. And like I said, this documentary where Tung Ching's being interviewed was in 2007. So what, that's 30 years on? Yeah. You're not going to remember it moment by moment necessarily. Among those who were eaten were a 22-year-old woman and a 13-year-old boy who was in fact the cousin of Hai, whose friend Kwong had already been killed and eaten. So you can see why Hai perhaps has a very negative memory of Ming in particular, if he blames him. Which he probably does. Yeah. Ming later claimed that the decision to kill for food had been by consensus. Because of the other people on the boat, I did this thing, and I hoped God blessed me. I am a Christian. I killed this man on the boat to help the living. Personally, I think it's wrong, but so many people needed to eat. When he says it's by consensus, that doesn't necessarily mean that's everyone. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's unanimous, that's true. And not everyone corroborates that story. For example, we've already had Yen, whose daughter died of thirst, and she said that the cannibalism was not a group decision. It was horrible, but we did not have the strength to stop him. Ming said the others had turned on him later because they didn't want to accept the blame for what they'd all done, so he's a convenient scapegoat. But equally, the others are a convenient scapegoat if he doesn't want to accept the blame for what he's done. So I don't really know there. A lot of different accounts. I feel the absence of a definitive agreement will go a long way in that confusion as it were because you can inherently personally internally disagree but not speak up and say no mm. which means that both there is consensus and there is not consensus at the same time and how you feel doesn't necessarily denote what you do yeah if as yan saying people are too afraid to speak up then to Ming that could sound like no one disagrees and also someone does have to make a call and Ming has already been I don't want to say elected but he has become the de facto leader yeah the buck has to stop somewhere and someone has to make a decision and it's very true that in making that decision he did cause the remaining people to survive so Apart from the ones that he had killed. Well, yeah, there's that. Finally, on the 28th of June, which is the day after that younger boy's been killed, the boat people are finally found and rescued by a Filipino fishing vessel from the town of Bolinao in the Philippines. 58 had died during the journey, making 52 survivors, hence the name Bolinao 52. That is... Quite impressive, actually, considering the odds of survival and some of the survival rates that we've had in previous accounts. I'm actually quite impressed. 
So that's over a month at sea, and there was that brief interlude with some extra provisions from the US, but in total, yeah. When you say an interlude, you mean two hours? Well, a week in which they had food from it was what I meant, but yeah, yeah very brief. The survivors were taken to a refugee camp on Palawan Island in the southwestern Philippines. Seven of them, including Ming, were separated for investigation on the charge of murder. I'm going to assume Ming and his posse. Yeah, exactly. In the refugee camp, rumours of the murder cannibalism were met with outrage by the Vietnamese community already there. Ming had to be placed under protective custody. The names of the others under investigation were withheld for the same reason. Whether or not to prosecute was a bit of a head-scratcher for the Philippine authorities. As the Sunday Times of 20th of November 1988 put it, Nearly everyone agrees that these killings are not a normal case of murder. Lawyers argue that desperate circumstances raise complex legal questions which are compounded by the refugee status of the Vietnamese and the fact that the deaths occurred at sea. This sounds a little bit like a certain legal case, Dudley and Stevens versus the Crown. It does indeed. I would say it's almost exactly the same. However, eventually, the decision is made not to prosecute. Firstly, because of the necessity defence, and also because it seems like everyone's a bit confused about who has jurisdiction in international waters. Sure, I mean, yeah, you can't be bothered to figure out who's responsible. And also who would do the uh, prosecuting. The other detainees were released, but Ming had to remain in protective custody a while longer. We feared a bit that he might be mauled, said a field officer for the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Ming was reportedly most distressed that his own mother, a resident of California in the US, had rejected him after seeing a newspaper article about the case. That's harsh, but also makes me think that perhaps the case hasn't been reported on particularly sensitively, because we've come across so many other cases where people's families are completely understanding or that it's the families of the victims rather than the survivors who quite understandably hold some reservations about forgiveness. Yes, most of the contemporary newspaper accounts that I read from 1988 do not have Ming's side of the story. They are the interviews with Hai and the other survivors who blame Ming for what happened. So you're exactly right, they're very strongly biased in that direction. Who also probably have survivor's guilt. Yeah. For being the ones who were not killed and eaten. But I think you'll be pleased to hear that it's not only Ming and his crew who face potential legal repercussions. Remember Captain Alexander Bellion of the Dubuque? Oh, thank goodness. Yes, he is held to account. He's suspended from command, facing court-martial on 28 charges of negligent homicide. Interviewed shortly after the events, he claimed he stood by his decision, calling the encounter a tragedy of errors caused by poor interpretation and inaccurate information relayed to him at the bridge. He claimed that his crew had told him that the refugees were in good shape and their boat was seaworthy, so they would be fine with just the supplies, which Bailey and claimed were larger than the survivors reported, so more water and more food. What about the photograph that your own men took of someone who starved to death in the two hours you were there? It's a really good observation. Lieutenant Commander Raymond H. Carlson 
prosecuting the case later, said, Sorry, can we have this in American accent, please? We can have this one in American accent. I have been very sensitive about (laughs) what I'm asking for an accent for. Only a fool could think that this vessel could effectively sail anywhere. Captain Balian is no fool. Ooh. It's like a real backhanded compliment that's also a, you're going to... uh... You're going to prison. Yeah. Although the survivors disagree with Balian's account, as in they think that he has abandoned them, they don't actually want to see him punished. 20 of them sign a petition saying as much. Wow. Former Lieutenant Colonel Ting Tang Xuan said, This captain was good enough to stop to give us food and water. We saw between 40 and 50 ships during our 37 days at sea, both before and after the Dubuque, and not one of the others stopped for even that. Which sounds like a really low bar there had been set. Like the bare minimum. Ignoring the fact that he actually gave a direct order that led to one of the survivors drowning. Yeah. They're better people than I am. Despite this, on the 24th of February, Balian was convicted of dereliction of duty for failing to conduct an adequate inspection of the refugee boat, to determine whether its sail was adequate, to conduct appropriate medical examinations of visibly dehydrated refugees, to provide necessary navigational equipment, to provide adequate water and clothing to the naked, and take refugees aboard, or see to it that they were taken aboard or assisted by a Navy supply ship in the area. So a long list of crimes there. And they definitely then didn't call someone else to come and have a look, otherwise he wouldn't have been done for that final dereliction of duty for not calling another supply ship. Exactly. The prosecutor Carlson said, Providing humanitarian assistance is a mission of the Navy, clearly and unequivocally. On the 9th of June, he was not concerned, as he should have been, with the humanitarian assistance mission of the United States Navy. Go and give some money to the RLNI. Balian claimed that he'd been made a scapegoat by the Navy, in a situation that was politically messy for the Navy, because no matter how you look at it, the Navy was embarrassed. He said that four of his crew members, in fact, should be investigated for court-martial for their conduct, having given him false information. Here's the thing, mate. Once you're the captain... The captain's responsible for the actions of his men. Exactly. I'm like, you have responsibility for the ship. That means you get all the praise. But also it means you can't pass off, oh, it was actually their fault. And that is ultimately how the decision's made. He won't give the name of the four men, I guess. Either because he's making it up or out of not wanting to get them in trouble. But either way, the decision is that you're in charge. You're to blame. You're the one that fucked up. No charges are pressed against any of the crew members. Balian also calls for justice against Ming. I don't feel that enough emphasis was placed on the conduct of the tyrant on that boat or on what really happened on that junk, why two young children were allowed to die and why three were murdered and all five eaten. Where is the accountability for that? Well, Balian, it's with you, right? It's either with you or with the people smugglers. Yeah, that too. Very good point. It's like, do I think Ming made all of the right decisions throughout this entire disastrous... It's not even an expedition, it's just a 
Trip. Trip. Escape attempt. Escape attempt, I think. (laughs) But he didn't choose it. Mm. He was also fleeing. You're between a rock and a hard place, right? Better than me saying frying pan in the fire. (laughs) But yes, true responsibility is either with the people at the very beginning who caused this, whether you would like to say that's the people smugglers, or in fact the Americans on Vietnam, or whatever on that side of the waters, or with the American officers who stepped in and could have saved everyone but didn't. Once you are on the junk and everything has already gone to hell, there's only so much that any one individual in that situation can do. I'm afraid to say that this was not the first or the last case of survivor cannibalism for Vietnamese boat people. For example, in a 2009 interview, Kim Chi, who left Saigon on a boat in 1979, described similar experiences. Everybody was hungry. One person said this before he died. Why not eat human flesh to survive? He then died, and his flesh was the first to be eaten by his wife and his children for them to survive. The idea started from there. After that, other people saw it and they began. The truth is it was horrible. When people were starving, perhaps their thinking was clouded and their judgement was impaired. Kim Chi's boat was at sea for around 65 days after the propeller got caught on a net and was broken. They drifted and ran aground on a sandbar where they were stuck until a ship stopped to rescue them. However, unluckily for Kim Chi's boat, the fishermen who rescued them were not, in fact, heroes. Instead, they extorted more gold per person out of the survivors, then pretended to sail back to Taiwan for 17 days, in fact dragging things out so they could charge daily for the amount of food consumed by the people they'd rescued. And counterintuitively, the refugees on board the ship were only saved when something exploded because the captain was so frightened that he called the authorities in Taipei to help. This is one of the situations where we are not, in fact, bringing out the best of people. Yeah, exactly. In another case from 1981, 15-year-old orphan Dao Vung Ku fled Vietnam with a group of fishermen. He recounted to the New York Times a series of fatal arguments over food, culminating in a group of older men deciding to kill and eat him. He was pinned to the deck and beaten over the head with an iron bar. They wanted to eat me and put a large pot of water up to boil. I waited for them to cut my throat. However, another youth on the boat died first, giving the boy a brief reprieve. Well, a complete reprieve, in fact. Well, yeah, he was rescued before they got round him again. Very true. His older companions denied those allegations, claiming that they'd done no cannibalism whatsoever. I'm torn with this. Mostly because of the pot of boiling water part of the story. Yeah. I completely believe in survival cannibalism at sea. I completely believe that people will and do murder. I completely believe that you will even be cruel enough to keep people alive because it's very important to drink their blood. That sounds weird. I'm not sure about the big, evil, boiling pot of water. It sounds like something out of one of the more racist Tintin comics, doesn't it? Yes. But then we have had someone's head being boiled in a soup can before, so at this point, I don't think I should question anything. What we can see from this picture is that 
vulnerable people put out to sea on these boats were throughout that entire period at risk of various atrocities, including having to turn to survival cannibalism. And finally, to end up this episode of Joys, I would like to skip forward to this century, because although the Vietnamese boat people phenomenon is over, refugees are still frequently setting out on dangerous boat journeys. Tung Ching, one of the Bolinao 52 survivors, described her reaction to images of refugee boats from the 2000s. I just feel the same when I saw their faces, just the same as us before. I hope now someone can help and someone can give them a hand, because they still have the same red blood like us. As recently as 2008, a group of 27 migrants in a boat from the Dominican Republic to Puerto Rico made international news. After both their boat's engines died, they were left bobbing at sea with no food and only rain and seawater to drink. Their numbers dwindled until the decision was made to eat one of the dead to survive. Gregorio Maria Marazin, a fisherman, told the Associated Press, Imagine, 15 days without food, without water. I'm a sailor, a fisherman. They were all yelling at me to do something. I always tried to be prepared, so I had brought my knife along. We hadn't bought food because it was supposed to be a quick trip. We had nothing to eat. We had to eat him to save our own lives. The next day, their remaining survivors, only five of them, including Maria Marazin, were picked up by a US Coast Guard helicopter and taken back to the Dominican Republic. Of course. Annoyed, angry silence really isn't a useful podcast reaction, but considering this episode, what else can there be? Finally, 2021. Anyone who follows our Twitter may remember that in June 2021, Alex got very excited that survival cannibalism was mentioned in the House of Lords. For our non-UK listeners, that's the unelected part of our parliament. Don't ask, it's all a bit weird. People should be allowed to have power over the law as long as they're rich enough and from a long lineage of noble families or whatever. Or bishops. Or bishops. Or just, I don't know, you can be made a lord, can't you? What, like Andrew Lord Webber? He's Lloyd Webber. Lloyd Webber, yeah. yeah. Yes, for example, (laughs) Mr. Phantom of the Opera. Anyway, in a discussion in the House of Lords about human rights at sea, the Department for Transport Minister Charlotte Baroness de Vere of Norbertham, that's a UK name, huh, said that these days shipwrecked seafarers would be rescued long before any decisions would need to be taken on who to eat. Would they now? Modern day search and rescue services are equipped with an astonishing range of technologies which aid both in the alerting of the rescue services that there is an issue, but also in terms of the location of persons in distress or potential distress. So, yeah, maybe that's the case for official craft, but what about refugee boats? And even if the technology says they're in distress, who's stopping to help them? And as I've referenced a few very subtle times in this episode so far, and we are now completely accepting that we have a bit of a political leftist slant here at Casting Lots. Never! Everyone are people who'd have thought it. (laughs) This year, 2021, an attempt to change the Nationality and Borders Bill by our Home Secretary, Pretty Fatal, which would basically make it 
illegal for the Royal National Lifeboat Institution volunteers to help drowning refugees or asylum seekers. As suddenly any attempt to help asylum seekers or refugees in international waters gain entry, even if that was not for personal gain, aka just to save their lives, would be illegal. It's not a question of whether lives at sea can be saved, it's who's allowed to be saved. And that is frankly disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> the Berlin R-52 case is still taught at the US Naval Academy as part of its ethics course for ship's commanders. And perhaps we should send Pretty Patel on that course. Yes, I think that's a very good idea. Although, are they actually teaching them to pick them up or just not to just go the other way? I don't trust any institution apart from the RLNI. End of episode. End of episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode on the Baolino 52. I know we're often quite light-hearted here, but the refugee crisis is a real and serious one across the world, so support where you can. Join us next time for Lord of the Flies with an unexpected twist. Casting Lots podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr as at Casting Lots Pod and on Facebook as Casting Lots Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share to bring more people to the table. Casting Lots, a survival cannibalism podcast, is research written and recorded by Alex and Carmela, with post-production and editing also by Carmela and Alex. Art and logo design by Riley, at Tallest Friend on Twitter and Instagram, with audio and music by Daniel Wackett. Daniel Wackett on SoundCloud and at DSWack on Twitter. Casting Lots is part of the Morbid Audio Podcast Network. Search hashtag Morbid Audio on Twitter and the network's music is provided by Michaela Moody. Michaela Moody 1 on Bandcamp. Morbid Audio Podcast Network.